Good evening, everybody. Hello and welcome to St. John's this evening. My name is Hannah. I am leading our service tonight. And you have arrived at an open to questions service. This is a style of service we do about every other month here at St. John's where we take a topic um, or a theme and we have a keynote talk around it. And then we have the opportunity for people to text or write in their questions. And our speaker um, has a go at answering some of them. Tonight's theme is a Christian perspective on assisted suicide. And um, I'll be honest, it is slightly different to some of the other Open to Questions events we've done here at St. John's. Um, Hopefully really interesting, um, hopefully really thought-provoking, but also potentially quite sensitive. Um, So just as we start, um, I just wanted to highlight that. Um, It is a really sensitive topic, um, and maybe tonight you are here feeling quite vulnerable about it, quite sensitive about it. Um, Maybe it is a topic that um, kind of hits you on a personal level for family, for friends, for someone you know. Um, And we wanted to flag that because, of course, this event tonight is about you asking your questions um, and hopefully hearing some answers. But that doesn't necessarily have to be um, in the public forum of during the question time. If you do have um, questions of a more personal nature, um, our speaker would be really happy to chat to you at the end. So just as we start, I wanted to highlight that. Um, please don't feel free, don't feel that um, you have to text questions in um, if you don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, but we are here for an open to questions. Um, and just as we start, um, I wanted to read a couple of verses from Matthew, which say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just take a moment to pray as we start. Father God, I thank you that you are our father. Thank you that you are our God. And I thank you that you give us that commandment so clearly. And as tonight we break down this this massive topic, this massive issue, this personal issue, I pray that we can remember that that greatest commandment is to love you, followed really quickly by how we love our neighbor, Lord. God, help us love you more. And help us love those closest to us and those around us more as well, Lord. I pray tonight that all of our questions, the talk, every every part of our discussion can be centered on what you are saying to us in your word and through your spirit. May we have eyes, ears, hearts open to hear from you tonight, Lord. And may you be speaking really clearly to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the structure of tonight is, in a moment, I'm going to invite our speaker up. Um, He's going to speak to us, and then we are going to break for refreshments in the middle. Um, We do have a load of donuts that need eating, so you can hold on to They are coming. Um, And you will have the chance to text in any questions. We are going to leave the number on the board throughout the talk. So if something um, kind of you want to text it in before you forget, please feel free to do that. Um, We won't be offended. Um, We'll break for refreshments, and then we will have a question and answer time um, at the end of our service. Um, Mark, if you'd like to come up. Mark is our speaker tonight. Some of you may recognize Mark. Um, He was a regular member of our congregation here about 10 years ago. Is that about about right? Um, And he's recently um, come back to the area and has recently become a a regular member of our congregation again. And he's going to introduce himself. Um, Yeah, this is Mark. Great. Thanks very much, Hannah. Good evening, everyone. Thanks a lot for coming along. Now, in 1990, Paul Lamb, who you'll see on the photograph here, he was severely injured in a car crash. And since then, he's had no function in any of his limbs, except for a little bit of movement in his right hand. He's wheelchair-bound, he needs 24-hour care, he's been in pain for 29 years. In fact, 
in pain every single hour of every single day. In a court statement, he said, I feel worn out. I'm genuinely fed up with my life. I feel I cannot and do not want to keep on living. I feel trapped by the situation and I have no way out. I'm fed up of going through the motions of life rather than living it. I feel enough is enough. Now, for several years, he's been a prominent campaigner for assisted suicide. And when describing the current legal situation, he recently stated that it could be construed as torture. Now, as humans, we cannot fail to be moved by such a story. And as Christians, we must feel compassion for someone trapped in a painful existence that they see no point in. But what would be the the compassionate response? Many would say it's to fix our broken, outdated laws, to sweep away years of religious prejudice, to embrace the progress that's taken place in numerous countries around the world, to give dignity to dying people, and to legalise assisted dying. And surely any other response would be harsh, cruel, even inhuman, an ivory tower response to real people and real suffering. Perhaps suffering is in our own friends, in our own family, maybe in past situations that we still remember vividly, and perhaps one day it may be us. Well, I think actually there is another response. I think there's a better response, and I think there's one that can combine compassion with protection from a much wider group of vulnerable people. In addition, I believe that we can be much more realistic about the realities of the sinful and selfish world that we live in. It's a response that doesn't require Christian convictions to begin with. It's one that's shared by many people who don't have a religious worldview. But for us as Christians, it's a response that is more integrated with a biblical worldview and it's one that we can apply to our complex world. We'll be asking what a good death might look like and what it means to die well, both for Christians and for others. And finally, we'll look at where Christian hope might fit in where we might be able to point people who have no hope for the future. We'll discuss some difficult questions and some situations that some of you might be struggling with personally right now. And as Hannah said, if there's anything that feels too sensitive to ask in the question time, then I'm happy to speak to anyone at the end. My own background is as a doctor, as a GP, and more recently as a prison GP. I've worked directly with many dying people, both in a hospice and also in a prison situation. But my main job these days is heading up the Christian Medical Fellowship. It's a national organisation that helps Christian doctors and nurses integrate their faith with their working lives. And this includes engaging with complex ethical issues just like those uh, that are at the end of life. Now, death isn't a comfortable subject. We don't like to talk about it, and most of us will avoid it, maybe pretend it's not going to happen, or sanitise it if we can't avoid it. Uh, The actor Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And one of the hardest things about this whole issue is just talking honestly about death. But before we go any further, let's just pause to look at terminology. We often hear about assisted dying in the media, but I prefer to talk about assisted suicide wherever possible. Now, assisted dying is a term that people prefer who are campaigning to change the law. It sounds softer, it sounds kinder, it sounds more appealing, and it's harder to argue against. But assisted dying is actually what goes on every day in hospices up and down the country. Palliative care is assisted dying. Um, Because the people are dying regardless of whether we do anything about it, but we can assist them by providing symptom control, emotional, psychological and spiritual support and by caring for their families. We assist them as they die and that's completely different from actively ending somebody's life. Now suicide is the act of killing yourself. It doesn't matter what your state of mind in, what your state of mind is at the time. It doesn't matter whether you're classically suicidal or not. It doesn't matter whether you would be dying naturally anyway from a terminal illness If you take drugs with a specific aim of ending your life, then that's suicide. And if a doctor prescribes that medication and gives it to you knowing that you'll take it to end your life, then that's um, assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide. 
And I think this terminology is quite important and it's often worth just gently pointing that out in some discussions because it does help to bring some of the realities home. And assisted suicide that we often talk about is distinct from euthanasia. It's generally accepted that euthanasia is when a doctor or a nurse administers the lethal medication to you, again with a specific aim of ending your life. Now, in assisted suicide, the patient takes the medication themselves and they retain the final decision. But in euthanasia, the clinician administers the drug, usually by injection or infusion. Now, there's a much higher chance of misuse within um, euthanasia because those lethal drugs could be given without a specific request from the patient or even in a patient who can't make that request, such as in severe dementia. Now, in some, case, in some countries, um, medicalised killing is predominantly euthanasia, if you think of Holland, Belgium or Canada, whereas in other areas like Oregon or California in the United States, it's predominantly assisted suicide. Most of the campaigning that we see in the UK is for assisted suicide. Now, medical decision-making at the end of life can be detailed and it can be really complex, And there's often a lot of misunderstanding about what these ethical decisions are and where they overlap, especially for people who aren't regularly involved in it. We can talk about some of the the details of that during the discussion time, but in summary, do not resuscitate decisions or the withholding or withdrawing of certain futile medical interventions at the end of life. They're not the same as assisted suicide or euthanasia. And usually those situations are entirely appropriate, or at least they are in many situations, although there's lots of details that we can talk about in the questions. And there's often a lot of misunderstanding as well about opiate medications such as morphine. Now, these are excellent medications in the, and they've got a well-established place in pain control at the end of life. And when you use them appropriately, they don't shorten life, even at high doses, because if you titrate them up gradually to respond to symptoms people get tolerance to them and you can take very high doses of those. It's only when you give an inappropriately high dose to someone who's not used to them that they'll depress your breathing and they can kill people. So there's well-known medical scandals such as Harold Shipman several years ago or more recently the Gosport War Memorial Hospital scandal when people were using opiates very inappropriately at much higher doses too quickly. Because when you use opiates properly, they kill the pain but they don't kill the patient. Now, who's heard of the campaign group Dignity in Dying? Just put your hand up if you know that name. Okay, so it's a very well-known organisation. They're probably the main organisation in this country that's campaigning to change the law. And they've got a really clear campaign goal. They want to bring in assisted suicide for terminally ill, mentally competent adults with less than six months to live. Okay, it's a very restricted, narrow law that they want to bring in. And you'll often see them on the, on the media calling for the government to fix what they would call our broken, outdated laws and restore compassion to society. Now, it's worth remembering that Dignity in Dying, or DID, used to be called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society. And actually, for most of their history, in fact, the first 70 years of their history, that's what they were called. Now, they have t- changed their name, some of the tactics and the terminology but essentially they've been advocating for very similar goals ever since the 1930s. But that word dignity is there right front and centre in what we hear in the media very often. And what does dignity mean in this context in the end of life? Now, DID would tell us that we cannot have true dignity as we die unless we've got the option of what they would call assisted dying and I would call assisted suicide. It's a very specific use of the word dignity, and if you look at some of the other campaigns, it's never defined. Look on the Dignity in Dying website, they don't say this is what dignity means. It really comes down to two things. It's about choice, and it's about control. Okay? Like when we say that a situation is beneath our dignity, not something that we want to do. And choice and control are bound up with another word, autonomy. Autonomy means self-directing, making your own decisions. But autonomy that's not limited by our circumstances where we get to decide what happens. But is that the main dictionary definition of dignity? Well, if you look, the main definition is usually something like the state or quality of being worthy of honour and respect. And there's nothing here about choice or control. 
It's about a value that's internal to us, inherent to us, and it's not dependent on our function or our abilities. Real dignity for dying people is much more what the hospice movement encapsulates. It's a positive message that says we value you, we respect you, and we'll be with you all the way, and we'll care for you in whatever way you need. And that view of dignity can be filled with hope. It's much more, much more hopeful than one that says, my life no longer has meaning, I can't control it, and therefore I want to end it. That's really an empty, negative, and hopeless view of dignity. And actually, dignity, as we usually hear it discussed, it's more akin to what we might call pride in a, con- in a Christian context. And I think as Christians, we do have to be wary of this, because it's the view that says... I must be in charge, I must exercise my autonomy, and I will not put up with a situation that I can't control. So it's really important for us to to see those two uses of the word dignity. Now, as Christians, we know that we are to bear one another's burdens, and we're to allow others to to bear our burdens when the time comes. Suffering isn't pleasant, but it can have meaning and purpose, and it can actually be transformative. So let's bring things back to the situation here in the UK. We often hear calls that Parliament should grasp the nettle, that they should catch up with public opinion. And when you hear that, you'd think that Parliament has never considered the question of euthanasia or assisted suicide. But in fact, they have done several times. And the last time they extensively looked at it was in 2015 at Westminster. And at that time, it was comprehensively rejected. And the arguments haven't actually changed. So what has changed? Well, really, there's two things, public opinion and the law in other countries outside the UK. Various countries in different territories have legalised assisted suicide or euthanasia ever since Holland and Belgium did back in 2001 and 2002. And as every new country or territory passes a law to legalise it, that puts more pressure on the UK government to say, well, come on, keep up with progress, we should do the same. And that changes public opinion. But we have to be clear that what happens in other countries doesn't change the essential arguments for or against assisted suicide. In fact, in many situations, it gives us clear evidence of some of the dangers of changing the law. Now, many of you will have seen about opinion polls that are often put in the media about more than 80% of the public support changing the law. And mostly this isn't from terminally ill people. It's what you might call the worried well. You know, it's people like me, often who are young and fit and healthy, and are thinking, you know, goodness, I wouldn't want to be in a situation like that, you know, fed through a tube, having someone doing personal care for me, you know, in a wheelchair, etc., etc. It's hard for us to, to look into the future and think, how would I feel if I was in that situation? If you, if you actually ask terminally ill people or severely disabled people, then the figures change significantly. Because we often learn to value the life that we have, even though it's not the life that we thought we would have. And situations that we couldn't possibly contemplate when we're fit and healthy, they can change later on. When, even though there's real challenges, we can often find that there's meaning and purpose when we're living them. When you look at the polls that cite 80% and above, the questions are often very loaded as well. They might say things like this. If you were dying in unrelievable suffering... And if there was a safe law that gave you the option of assisted death, would you want this option? And when you ask it this way, it's almost a no-brainer. And of course people are going to say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. But when people are presented with some of the wider context about what happens in other countries and some of the problems with it, then their, their views often change. Now, as well as that, most people only answer polls thinking about, well, how would I want to, you know, what sort of situation would I want to have? It's much harder to look at the wider context, the potential unintended consequences, the negatives for other people. What might, what effect might that have on other vulnerable people? But parliamentarians have to consider all the sides, and they've got to be objective. That's one reason why the UK hasn't reintroduced the death penalty, even though if you ask public opinion polls, most people would support it. One of the main reasons why Parliament's always rejected changing the law on assisted suicide is because of the huge potential to put pressure on other vulnerable people, the people who are disabled or terminally ill, or maybe just feeling a burden on other people. Now, the laws that are being proposed at the moment, they're a long way away from what the Nazis did in Germany in 1930, a forced euthanasia programme 
to eliminate the sick and the disabled. No one's talking about that. But once we change the culture and once we enshrine in law the idea that there is such a thing as a life that's not worthy to be lived or that suicide is actually a good thing, it's a positive thing in certain circumstances, we can't control where that might take us. Of course, terminally ill people and disabled people can be incredibly vulnerable. So picture the scene. An elderly person in a nursing home slowly deteriorating with various chronic diseases deeply conscious that every day they live eats up more of the money that they hope to pass on to their family members, maybe for that first house purchase, maybe for those university fees. Now, nobody might be actively suggesting to them that they should be requesting assisted suicide, but how can we prevent them feeling that that's what they should do? We talk about the right to die, but that can very easily feel like the duty to die, and we can't control how people may feel about that. And furthermore, we know that many families are not consistently caring um, and that elderly relatives might be resented, they might be ignored. You know, elder abuse is, is a sad reality in this country. And so our laws have to protect them from pressure. Pressure, whether real or imagined, like we said a minute ago, to request an early death. Now, if you look at Oregon, which is one of the countries um, in the US where... Um, it's, it, people often say this is working really well. The stats show that more than 50% who request assisted suicide in Oregon, one of the reasons they give for that is feeling a burden. More than 50%. And, and that's, that's one of the things that's held up as a real success story. One of the other things that's prevented Parliament from changing the law is that it's the knowledge that it's virtually impossible to guarantee that you couldn't change the law further later. You can't open Pandora's box just a little bit and leave it there. Once it's open, we lose control over what happens next. Take an example that most of us will will be aware of, the Abortion Act that was passed in 1967. At the time, it was meant to be used just rarely for really hard cases, things like rape or incest, or when the mother's life was genuinely in danger. And yet today we have 200,000 abortions a year, and it's seen as a fundamental reproductive right, It's essential for the empowerment of women. It's a necessary contraceptive backup. It's even a lifestyle choice. Just see how far we've come in those 50 years. Nobody could have predicted that. Lord Steele, who proposed the the bill, um, admits that he could never have seen how far it would change. And if anyone disagrees with that, just look overseas. Look at Belgium and look at Holland. The laws that they passed in 2001-2002 have significantly widened in their practice. Children and babies with disability... People with chronic mental illness, physical illness, people who are simply elderly and tired of life, even couples who just don't want to go on living without each other. All have uh, have had euthanasia in these countries. And Canada is a really chilling comparison because they've only just recently passed a law in 2015, came into effect in 2016, but there's already been really rapid cultural change there in Canada. And just last year in 2019, so only three years after it changed, um, One of the courts, I think, in Quebec has struck down the law that says that your death has to be reasonably foreseeable. They've opened the door completely wide to anybody with something that they perceive as as intolerable suffering. Healthcare professionals are under great pressure there. Some of them are risking being struck off for not actively referring people for euthanasia. And in the UK, there's already pre-existing pressure, before the law has changed, to change it even further. Think about some of the the difficult stories that you hear in the media that come quite regularly. Many of the people that you hear about there, when you look at the details, they wouldn't even qualify for assisted suicide under the laws that are being proposed. Let's just think back to Paul Lamb, the chap that we saw at the beginning. Now, this poor guy, he lives every day in pain. He needs assistance with his feeding, his toileting, with almost everything. And we can't fail to have compassion for him, and yet he would not qualify under the laws that are being proposed. Just let that sink in for a minute. He's not terminally ill. His situation has remained much the same for 29 years, and he could live for for many more years as well. But he can't even take the medicine himself because his arms don't work. So he would need euthanasia. He'd need someone to actually um, administer the medication to him. And you'd need a law that went far beyond terminal illness to intolerable suffering. He's recently been trying to challenge the law in the High Court. It's been turned down again recently. 
But there's an organisation that supports him called My Death, My Decision, which basically says any adult who wants to to have an assisted suicide, if there's anything that could be classed as incurable health problems, should be able to get it. That might be diabetes, that might be arthritis, it might be early onset dementia. I was going to talk a little bit about family members who are often in the news um, for um, taking their relatives to Dignitas in Switzerland. I think for the sake of time we'll come back to those in the questions. But that's very, very relevant that we can come back to. So I've looked at a lot of details in this first part and as we close that out let's just bring it back to some principles. How should we view assisted suicide as Christians? How can we respond to the difficult and distressing situations that our friends or family might face? And what does it mean to die well as a Christian? Well, does, what does the Bible have to say about this? Now, that there are two situations in the Bible that could be described as euthanasia. Can anyone tell me what they are? Eddie got one, so see if you can beat the vicar. King Saul, yeah, absolutely. When he fell on his sword after when he was dying on the battlefield. Anyone else? It's a bit more esoteric. Okay, you're not quite the same, okay? Because he wasn't actually he wasn't actually offering himself, was he? He was just going along with it. Abimelech in Judges chapter nine was another one very similar to Saul. They're really interesting. We can look at those in the questions if you if anybody wants to. But basically, they're not really held up as examples for us to follow in the Bible. Now, being a Christian should transform our view of death and suffering. Christians don't have to fear death. And nor do we have to see suffering at the end of life as simply pointless. Dealing with suffering is a massive pastoral challenge, obviously, and it's got many facets, but it can have its positive sides. And the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, tells us that trials can refine our faith and result in praise to God. Many people have got um, evidence of that at the end of life. We may have gained inspiration ourselves from watching a Christian brother or sister face death or suffering with serenity and with trust in God. And this can give us confidence to face our own trials. And then if we can face trials and an impending death with trust in God, then we can pass encouragement on to others who will face it. We shouldn't be thinking that we're worthless just because we can't do the things that we used to do. Because our worth in God's eyes doesn't come from our function. It comes from who we are. And rather than feeling undignified if people have to care for us as we approach the end of life we should be able to let them bear our burdens. Just like Paul says in Galatians 6, we should carry each other's burdens. Now, if we're in the position of caring for dying people, we have to be really careful to demonstrate that we value them despite their failing bodies, and we have to dispel any feelings of worthlessness that they have by the words we use, by the love that we share, and by the care that we give them. And if we do that, then that's real dignity in dying by showing that they're worth caring for. It's very common for dying people to use their final months to sort things out, to put their house in order, to provide for the future of their family, maybe to restore relationships that they've neglected and think about passing on their legacy to other people. They can be really positive times when you know that you've only got a limited time left on earth. Often dying Christians can be excellent evangelists Because not only does their situation give them an added urgency themselves, but facing death peacefully can be a powerful example of faith and action. And of course, it's terribly rude to argue with a dying person. So um, people may be more willing to listen and less inclined to argue than they were before. Now, some some Christians, all Christians, will be moved by arguments for compassion, but some will will use that to say, well, we should legalise assisted dying because of Christian compassion. People like the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, or Archbishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Both of those spoke out a few years ago when there was a bill before Parliament saying they'd changed their minds about it. Now, we can, again, we can look at that in the, the questions if you like, but I think they've essentially misunderstood some of the things that we've talked about or underestimated the risks of changing the law. Now, just as we finish off, um, we said earlier on that all of us will die. That's the one thing that we can be certain of. But as Christians, we don't have to fear death. Now, the process might be quick and painless, or it might be long and challenging. 
But it's good for us to reflect now, before the time, on what it might mean to die well as believers. And let's commit ourselves, when the time comes, to glorify God through our deaths, if he gives us, actually, the grace to, have, to know that it's coming, to be able to prepare for it. In the Bible, people used to see it as a, a great injustice to have a quick death that they weren't expecting. Whereas these days, we tend to see that as a mercy because we don't have to think about it. But actually, being able to prepare for our death can be really helpful. Much of the support for assisted suicide is grounded in fear, hopelessness, a denial of the inherent dignity of humanity, and not understanding that suffering can have a positive element to it. But for us, as we look back to Jesus' death and resurrection, we can see there how um, a death that seemed like like just pointless suffering, that can be completely transformed into something incredible. And then for us as his disciples, we can reflect that in some small way. in our own suffering and death in some situations. And we may be able to point people back to that, the Lord that we have who, after all, has beaten death. Now, the gospel is the ultimate thing that will bring people hope and comfort and purpose when they're facing the end. So let's remember that and let's turn that around and bring that into our conversations as we do that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that um, Mark has opened up so many different um, areas that we could explore in question time. Um, So what we're going to do now is break for refreshments. Tea and coffee will be served over on this side of the church and there are donuts over on this side of the church. So please help yourself um, to both of those things. Please feel free... Um, to send your questions in. If you um, do not have a phone on you or your phone does not have signal, um, then there are bits of paper at the end of each row. um, So please do grab one of them or come and ask me for another bit. Um, Also, if your phone um, will be able to send in texts with the internet, then the Wi-Fi code is just out in the fellowship room. So please feel free to make use of that. Yeah, we're going to take some time, send your questions in, and we will reconvene in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Thank you so much if you have um, sent a question in. Um, I meant to say earlier that the um, text number is totally anonymous. It goes um, to the computer to a a thing that we pay for. Um, So um, none of your numbers are on it or anything. So um, if you would still like to send a question in, please feel free to do. And they are just coming through to the computer as we're talking, keeping us on our toes. Um, So we're going to get started. Um, Are you ready? Are there any circumstances where you believe assisted suicide is acceptable? Okay. I think it's... um, The really challenge, I think, is just framing a law so that you couldn't... You know, things wouldn't go further. And also, like I said, that vulnerable people won't actually feel uh, pressure to request it. So probably the safest kind of law would be when you had some kind of judicial oversight, like if you applied to a, a panel... You know, a judge would say, okay, have you fulfilled this criteria, etc., etc., then, then off we go. Um, to be honest, I was quite surprised when a similar proposal was put forward not too long ago that that didn't get more approval. And I think that's the sort of challenge we've got in a, in a society when you know, people have got all different kinds of views about it. You have to have something that will allow some people to, to um, you know, take that choice if they really want to, but then not put pressure onto other people. I think the thing that really, that really worries me is this incremental extension thing. So like I was saying with, with Paul Lamb's case, you know, even before the law has changed, there are people campaigning through the courts and through the media to, to blow it wide open, just like has happened in Canada only three years after it was passed. So it's that balance. And we, we talk about hard cases make bad law, in that if we, just take, if we take the few cases where we think, oh, yeah, that's a really tricky one, then if you make a law that will, that will allow those people, well, how do you avoid bringing lots of other people to it? Cool. Um, sorry, I just had about 12 questions all come through at once. Um, okay. Do you think the majority of people who ask to be assisted in their death have no concept of eternal life? I don't have any stats on it, but I think that's probably true because um, if people have a view of 
you know, there is something that they're going on to. You might, in a, you might in a sense think, well, maybe that would just make me think, you know, let me get there quicker. Just like in Galatians, Paul says, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got a job to do here, so maybe I'll stay on, on the earth and carry on, or maybe I want to depart and, and be with Christ, which is better by far. I think for most Christians, they would say, that is mostly in God's hands, and he may have a job for me to do that I don't understand. Um, whereas most people who I think are saying, look, my life is either pointless or I just can't cope with it, it's because any suffering that they've got, we often find it hard to make sense of that. And, and any thought about the point of their life is just, if that's, um, you know, if the only point of their life is for them to run their lives, then that's, there's no reason to drag it out anymore. Is consent for a close family member who is dying to the doctor to remove life support? Sorry, let me start again. Is consent for a close family member to the doctor to remove life support, is that assisted suicide? Uh, No, no, it's not. And I think this is one of these end-of-life situations that people can really agonise about and maybe feel guilty about afterwards. But it's important to be clear what the law says. So in a situation like that, if someone, for instance, has... Let's say someone's been in a car crash and they end up on a ventilator and then after several days um, there's no response and the medical team have made the tests that they need to do and they say, OK, this appears to be brainstem death. Basically, there's no useful brain function there. And if you turn, the only thing that's keeping them alive or keeping them functioning and their heart beating is the fact that you're breathing for them. So there's, there's no life for them to return to in those situations. Now, the legal situation then, it's not down to the relatives to make the, to make the decision. So people will often think, goodness, you know, is it down to my decision whether my relative lives or dies? It's not. It's the medical team that bear the responsibility for that but they'll want to take into account what the, the family say. And if the medical team will say, we think it's brainstem death, but the family's really against turning off the ventilator, they might keep it going for you know, a few days more, have another look and see, do the tests again and see if it changes, but it's not down to the family member. Now, the, the really difficult cases are when it's almost there, but not quite. So um, if you remember a case called Tony Bland, he was one of the people who was in the Hillsborough Football Stadium disaster, and he ended up in what's called a persistent vegetative state. We also talk about a minimally conscious state, and he didn't need a ventilator. He was breathing unaided, and um, he would sometimes seem like he was awake, but there was actually nothing obvious going on in terms of brain function, so he wasn't responding to people. So he would look like he was... You know, he might be looking out the window, but he's not really taking in anything in. And in that situation, it comes down to food and fluids. So since the Tony Bland case, you always used to have a court judgment to remove food and fluids, whereas I think in 2018 the law changed so that it's, it's simpler to do that, so more of those decisions are being made. And in those situations, it's really difficult because food and fluids actually becomes a medical treatment that you can usefully withdraw and you have to think, well, what would this person want? You know, we can't actually ask them what they want. You know, do they want to withdraw that? Um, and they may, you, know, you may have to say, well, what did they say when they were healthy? Did they ever write about it? Did they ever speak about it? But it's a really difficult ethical decision at those points. Okay, thank you. Um, if the patient was capable and wanting to, they would commit suicide. And as Christians, surely we need to be more compassionate at the cause than thinking about how they can evangelize using their experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things. No one's suggesting that somebody who's you know, feeling suicidal as in great mental distress is, is going to, you know, we should be beating them up and saying you should be sharing your faith with everybody. Um, I think the whole thing about how do we view suicide, this is a really hot topic because society has always said, you know, I mean, Back in the times of the Greeks, it was, it was noble to commit suicide. You know, if you, if you were done with life, then it was a good thing to do. We've gone away from that because that's not been the Judeo-Christian model. And for a long time, we've said, look, if you feel suicidal, then there must be something we can do to help you. You know, we would always support you, but we wouldn't say, yep, you go ahead and commit suicide. That's a good thing because it's about the worth of life. And even though a person may not feel 
that they've got dignity or worth that we would want to help them see a different perspective. So that's different to a situation where someone is, is dying um, of a physical illness and they know that the end is approaching. You know, we all know that we're going to die, but people with a terminal illness get a bit more clarity on that. And then it's, it's hard to give them an estimation to say, well, you know, you've got six months or 12 months because those things are nearly always wrong. But we often talk in terms of time span. So it might, we might maybe say you've probably got years or you've probably got months or weeks or days to live or hours sometimes. And when you're in that situation, that often brings a clarity so that the person themselves can really change their view on life. So um, one of my favourite books on this kind of topic is from a, a medical author called John Wyatt. He talks about dying well. I really recommend that. And he tells the story of a friend of his from church who was, you know, for most of, or for, for the, most of the time that John knew him, he was, he was a PhD researcher in a really obscure um, area of music theory and music history and you know, that was fine and he was spending all of his time working on that but then he got cancer and he was given a terminal diagnosis and his outlook on life completely changed and the thing that drove him was right I need to write to all the people that I've known that I've never shared my faith with and there were some incredible stories of engagement with people and that was from him so just having that, that change of situation thinking right I don't have the rest of my life stretching out you know, to an unknown point. I've got a limited period left. What am I going to do to really make it count? And people in many situations have, have turned that around and, and done amazing things with it. Amazing. Um, do you think it makes a difference if advances in medical science has brought someone back from being dead before they make the request for assisted suicide? For example, resuscitation after heart attack, then significantly debilitated quality of life yeah so what we do in terms of resuscitation that's another of these end of life scenarios so we often hear about do not resuscitate decisions that people might have on them and occasionally they get really controversial like if a relative you know finds out that their you know their aunt or their parent has actually got a do not resuscitate decision made on them by the clinical team and nobody knew about it you know what does that mean does that mean they're not going to care for them and they're going to just just let them die in a corner um etc etc most of the time if, if a do not resuscitate decision is made it should nearly always be made with the person if they can speak about it or the family if they're there just to say well here's why we're thinking about this it's not about is your relative or are you worth trying to save it's okay, you know, you've, your body has got to a point where if your heart stops and if your lungs stop, there's nothing really that we can do to bring you back. You know, we might perhaps get you back for a couple of days, but, you know, you might have brain damage from that. And many people who do end up after a resuscitation attempt that didn't go so well, they might be brain damaged on a ventilator and then you're into situations like the Tony Bland situation I, me- I mentioned, or you end up just turning off the ventilator a few days later. So the, the best thing we can do is make good decisions about resuscitate, resuscitation decisions and to be honest with people early on. Now, it's really helpful if, you might, if, if somebody might be facing an end-of-life situation to talk to them before it gets to a crisis point and say, well, you know, this will be approaching at some point. Let's just talk about what we might like to do. You know, where would you like to die when the time comes? Are there any particular things that you would or wouldn't want us to do? And it's really appropriate to do that. Brilliant. Um, in light of one of the Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt not kill, um, this person says they interpret that to um, killing oneself or to others. And therefore, they'd like to hear your views, um, either personal or biblical, hmm. maybe they're similar, um, in dealing with euthanasia. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's... Probably asking the question of, you know, is committing suicide an unforgivable sin or, or that sort of thing? And that's obviously a, a difficult pastoral situation. Um, I think for people who are committing suicide because the balance of their mind is disturbed, then I don't think God is going to be holding that against them. Um, and I don't think that will be in any sense the defining factor in, in how, um, you know... Uh, how their evaluation works out and and what happens in the afterlife for them at the resurrection. So I don't think we need to worry 
too much about, you know, will that, is that the sort of make or break situation? But I think um, it does, our, our view of is God relevant, you know, are his commands or his view relevant to how we live our life and how we live out our death? That will obviously change how we view that and the decisions that we make. Okay. Um, there's been a couple of questions come in around carers. Mm. Um, this one in particular says, carers carry a huge load, often unacknowledged, especially by those in government, etc. And as such, should the law change to provide financial support for carers? And what else can be done to help those who feel a burden? Yeah, I, th- I think so much more could be done. I mean, obviously, that you're, you're always dealing with a finite pot of money. And that's the challenge for everything. Um, but I think it, it would be a terrible shame if people were requesting assisted suicide just because there wasn't the care provision then to help them through. Now, that's something that, um, if we're aware of that in our friends or family, there may be things that we can do to help give some respite to, to carers, to help them out or to, to, to support them. There may be something that we as a church or, or other churches can do, but I think within the health service in general the more support that's offered to people, um, the better the outcomes are because um, there are many situations when people may simply either fear what may happen or they may just say, look, I I can't cope with this on my own and and that may be driving some of the decisions that they make. Um, I talked a little bit about some of the options in other, or some of the situations in other countries. In Canada, for instance, there have been some really sad stories about people who've been told, well, your medical insurance won't pay for home care with your chronic medical condition, but it will pay for assisted suicide. You know, would you like to have that? I mean, they, won't, they wouldn't say it quite as cheerily as that, but that's the kind of choice that people have been, have been put with. And again, in Canada, you have, a, you have an actual constitutional right to what they call medical aid in dying, but you don't have a constitutional right to palliative care. You you have to have the insurance for it. And palliative care provision in the UK is fantastic when it's there, but many hospices have to raise money and charitable money. It's not fully funded by the NHS um, as it should be, and that that is certainly something that is a a real shame. Now, Neil, did you want to come in and talk a little bit about there? Because we have our very own NHS funding man here... <laughs> and Neil is going to sort everything out for us. Yeah, you can you can put all the blame on me. So um, my my day job is uh, managing director of Greenwich and Bexley's clinical commissioning groups, which basically means we oversee um, all of the funding of the healthcare system in the two boroughs. And um, I thought I'd just say a few uh, stats um, across South East London. We spend two hundred sixty million pounds in what's called continuing healthcare. So this is support for people whose needs have gone beyond um, uh, basic home care support, where you've got kind of 24-hour nursing or very intensive care packages. And and just in Greenwich alone, that's £51 million. That's 11% of our budget goes on individuals' uh, cases that are are there. Um, Just in terms of access to social care, um, there are actually quite a lot. There's access to personal health and social care budgets. So quite often people don't necessarily realise what's always available to them. But there are advocacy organisations and there are carer um, support services that are there. Um, And we've got a really good uh, carer centre in Greenwich. So do do sort of link into that. uh, and just in terms of services that we do have available, uh, we do have an excellent hospice. Um, it isn't fully funded by the NHS. Uh, we put about £5 million a year into the hospice, but there's other funds uh, that they draw on. Uh, and, and that's not well. your fault, Neil, is it? That's a national No, no, it's problem. not my personal choice. If, you know, and I, I guess... But what's interesting is those hospices are able to raise additional funds. So I guess there's an interesting uh, question of if, we, if, if they didn't source those funds, then, then things would be more challenging. Um, but that... But actually, a lot of the work of the hospice actually isn't about inpatient care. A lot of it is supporting people in their own homes. So actually, our hospice provides uh, the specialist palliative care support that goes into Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So if anyone's in there with palliative care needs, they actually it's the hospice staff who are overseeing that. And we've just moved that to a seven-day service rather than a five-day service to try and support that. Um, so that is one extra bit of money that we've been able to find. Um, uh, and I suppose there's, there's quite a lot of 
a lot of palliative care is done actually by district nurses um, in the community um, and we're providing increasing support to care homes. One of the most important things is the one certainty in life is we will die. Um, there's about 1,620 people will die in Greenwich each year. About 53% of people die in hospital. If you actually ask most people, about 80% of people would say these slides are way too small. But we actually had an end-of-life care uh, presentation at the Health and Wellbeing Board in Greenwich on uh, Wednesday this week. So I can just send a link around for anyone who's interested in some information about end-of-life care. Um, but one of the key things... The, the graph on the far right-hand side is where would you prefer to, stay, to die? And basically over 80% of people said they prefer to die at home. But in reality, only 53% do. And a lot of the reason is because people haven't planned. And so when crisis happens, they end up in the hospital system. Um, and actually, if you'd planned for it. So one of the things we've got is this thing called Coordinate My Care, which is a system that actually allows the ambulance services, uh, the hospitals, the GPs to all share uh, a system so that if someone is in crisis, that doesn't mean they automatically go to the hospital because very often what's happening is the family or the individual is in crisis, but they need support there, but they don't necessarily need to go into the hospital system. Um, and actually, if we can do that, we can actually support people better in their own home situation. That actually saves the hospital system as the whole system money, but it also helps provide better support for people in their own homes. So one of the challenges is turning up in A&E is not the best environment yeah. uh, for many people. So it's, it's about how you can do that in a proactive way. Obviously, some people will choose and they will want to die in a hospital, and that's absolutely fine, and that's respected. Uh, but the majority of people would say they would rather not. A lot of families find it hard, and there are whole supports around there. We've got a lead uh, GP from, I don't know how many people are registered with Fairfield Practice, but Caroline Hollington, who's a GP there, she's the lead for us, um, and uh, she funds, she's funded for three uh, sessions a week, so three, one and a half days a week, um, supporting our end-of-life care uh, support work. So, I mean, there's an awful lot we are trying to do to improve end-of-life care, but it's, it's, it's still a really challenging area. But I think the, the message that I was saying at the Health and Wellbeing Board and I think it's a collective thing, is we don't like talking about death. We're always talking about births, and we celebrate it, and we go and tap people's you know, pregnant mum's tummies, and we delight in babies. But we really, as a, as a country, we don't talk about death, and actually it's the one certainty. Um, and actually we need to be braver about having those conversations. And it makes it hard for our clinicians to have conversations with people. It makes it harder for uh, patients as well. But actually it's the one certainty in life. Um, but if we can address it, we can actually put better plans in place. Mm. Um, but some of the cases, like the Paul example, I deal with the continuing health care. Mm. Uh, uh, when, when basically the cost of those cases are over a certain trigger, as managing director, I have to approve them. And so each week I'm reading sort of three or four stories of people who are in incredibly challenging situations um, and authorising uh, the care and the support that's put in place. But the, 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 those systems are there uh, for people. Um, could we do more? Absolutely. Um, but that's just a bit of a kind of an yeah, overview. That's great. Thanks very much, Neil. That's really helpful. Isn't it amazing that we have people like Mark and Neil in our church? Like, I just think that's, that's amazing. Um, thank you, Neil. Neil had not planned to say anything tonight, and so I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what do you think to the fact that people with high-functioning autism are requesting and receiving euthanasia in Belgium? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, in general, really sad because um, we, we see in some of these situations where, again, the culture has changed and there can be a bit of a conveyor belt kind of process. The, the law gets widened or the scope of the law, the interpretation gets widened. And, and often people just don't want to bother as much because the, the easy way out is, OK, well, yeah, let's just do that. So people with mentally distressing situations can be um, often requesting assisted suicide. And people with, with high-functioning autism and Asperger's, they've often got a very logical approach to life. And they may just say, well, OK, I can't cope with my life. I can't see how it could go on. Therefore, the thing to do is to kill myself. And if you just come to, some, to a, a clinician and say, that's what I want to do, and they're not, they're not going to have that really unpacked and say, well, can we help you through this and can we help you see things better and what would change that for you I think that, that's a really sad thing um, very often it just having the, the right sort of um, counselling or, or mental health care could really help with that 
I think there was a recent case in Belgium that's in the, in the news at the moment from a, um, a somebody with, with autism who, who was given assisted suicide. I think the family is suing the doctors now for not actually doing that properly, for not actually assessing it properly. Cool, thank you. Um, you wanted to speak about relatives a little bit. Uh, we, ju- we have just had a question come in about relatives oh, as well. Perfect. Um, what, what's time. the question? Uh, it's, do you think that families should actively talk to elderly relatives about the end of life a long time before the end of life is? Totally, yeah. I think, um, like we've been saying a number of times, not talking about stuff just makes it worse. And especially end-of-life situations, it's, a bit, it's, it's awkward. You know, there's lots of things that it brings up. I remember a, a, a really poignant situation in the hospice where I was working. We had a guy who was brought in Friday afternoon, and it was very clear that he, was a, he only had a, a few days or a couple of days left to live, so we had to do quite a few things quite quickly to put it in place. And he'd come from a hospital, and on the paperwork it didn't seem clear at all whether he knew he was dying. And that's a really difficult situation. So as I'm... You know, processing things and, and talking to him about the situation. I was just building up to the question of, well, how do you see the next few days? What do you think you're here for? You know, the, the, the do you know that you're dying question. And I felt this squeeze on my elbow from his wife, basically to say, don't you dare tell him he's dying. I thought, oh my goodness, this is just a disaster in the making. So we sort of finished off what we had to do there, went and had a, a talk to his wife, and she was saying, look, you can't tell him he's dying. He won't cope. You know, he, he won't be able to deal with that. And actually, when I spoke to him on his own, he knew he was dying, but it was his wife that couldn't cope with it. And she's saying, you can't tell him because he doesn't know and he won't cope with it. And all of this unspoken stuff was just an absolute disaster. So in that situation, we managed to get to the bottom of it in time. Both of them knew what the deal was, and they actually had an amazing weekend. You know, they, they, they talked about all the stuff they had to talk about, they had a laugh and a joke. They remembered old times. They, you know, got some memories laid down. And then he actually died very peacefully on the Monday. But it wasn't all tense and horrible. It was, okay, you know, we know where we're heading. In a sense, you can relax a little bit when, when you know where you're going and have all the conversations you need to. So, yes, we should talk to people. And if it becomes clear for any reason that someone's really having a, a problem dealing with something, well, that's a re- that's the time to get professional help. It may be that there's tensions in the family and it's actually difficult for a certain person to have these conversations because of things that's gone on in the past. Um, maybe that somebody else can come in with that, you know. Maybe Eddie could come and talk to them. Absolutely. <laughs> Eddie's looking a little bit, a little bit stunned at that point. Um, but, you know, that someone else could do that, somebody external, maybe a, a medical professional or somebody from the church or someone else in the family, but it's, it's good to talk. Absolutely. Um, there's been a few questions um, on the theme of love, um, and as Christians we're told to love our neighbour. Um, is it sometimes the most loving thing to um, allow someone to go through assisted suicide? That, that's a great question, and it's like questions of what is in somebody's best interests. You know, they're, they're exactly the right questions to ask, but there's actually so much packaged up in that. You know, if, if somebody, if we're Christians and, we be, and someone else isn't a Christian and they're requesting assisted suicide, is that a great thing for them to die not knowing God? No, it's not a good thing. You know, and so actually um, people can sometimes use assisted suicide as a way out of a situation to say, I just don't want to have to deal with the stuff at the end of life. I don't want to have those difficult conversations. They might they would probably regret not having them but people have the choice to do that it's not always just about physical suffering um, because so much of it is about um, mental and emotional and spiritual things going on as well so is it the most loving thing to do? I think it's it's a really difficult situation like I was saying at the beginning, balancing up what is the best thing to do for this this person in front of us and then the wider society Um, that's that's the tricky thing Mm, definitely. Um, can you comment on the cases of Charles Gord? 
Charlie Gard. Charlie yeah. Gard, sorry, and Alfie Evans. Some campaign groups have been calling these cases murder, especially as one of the children apparently could breathe for a few days afterwards, although all medics involved said that there was nothing whatever to be done. And you might just want to explain. Yeah, totally. I think that there's, there's three very famous cases that have been in the news recently. So Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans... Um, one of them, I forget which one it was, um, they were trying, the parents were trying to take the child to Italy. They'd been granted Italian citizenship. The Pope had got involved, and it was all pretty nasty. And I think that some of the hospital um, staff were getting threats from protesters outside. A situation like this, when you've got a severely disabled child, knowing what to do about that is really... Um, it's really emotive and decisions that are made a lot of it depends on trust and communication between the family and the clinical team and sometimes you might get a situation when the particular hospital that's looking after a child might say look there's no hope in this situation it's that this child is only going to deteriorate it's actually cruel to keep them on a on a ventilator or, or whatever and that there's no improvement and sometimes you might get a second opinion from someone who knows more about it in a specialist centre. Most of the time in these situations, a clinical team would be happy to say, well, let's get another expert in, let's look at it. Um, I think in one of the situations, you had another specialist in another country who didn't even have the full situation, was just saying, oh, yeah, we might offer this experimental treatment, but that's not been shown to work. And then people will latch on to that and say, look, you know, if you only send them to America, then they'll get this and everything will be wonderful. And sometimes that's just false hope, you know, that sadly there are situations when children have degenerative diseases and they will die whatever happens. And then it's a, it's a case of saying, let's, let's not make it more traumatic for them, let's actually give them paediatric palliative care, let's keep them comfortable and support the family as they die occasionally you might get a situation that's genuinely more open. So more recently there was another situation uh, with a child called Tafida. I think it was Tafida, Tafida Begum, or Begum, and she actually did... She, she won a court battle because there was a real... Or her family did. The family really wanted to, to keep her on treatment and transfer her to a hospital in Italy. Her UK team said, no, that wouldn't do anything. Um, the court case was won. She has actually gone to Italy. She's in a hospital there she's still alive i'm not sure what sort of situation she's in there may have been some change but it, it's very hard to to get it from media stories because so much of it gets sensationalized but talking about a situation like that as murder is generally incredibly unhelpful because you know the, the clinical staff even if they might not be the best in the world at dealing with that situation they're often really rare situations like you might have sometimes even conditions that don't have a name because they're so rare. And so you might have uh, really different, situa different views amongst clinical teams and it's really worth getting lots of people involved but everyone giving each other a bit of, a bit of leeway as well. Um, we've got three more questions. Um, there's a few questions around um, life support um, and someone's asked, what about withholding pharmaceuticals or switching off? Machines. Yeah, and all of these things really come down to the, the individual situation. Um, but it's, it's often very appropriate not to have a, another course of treatment. So if you, if you have somebody with, say, terminal cancer, um, the, the position of an oncologist whose job is to treat cancer might be very different to that of a palliative care specialist. And you might have somebody where they say, look, we could try this, you know, that the first-line treatment hasn't worked, the second-line treatment hasn't worked. There's this newer treatment, we could try it. There's only a 10% chance that it might actually make a difference. Even if it does, you know, it's going to cost £40,000 and it, it might only give you an extra three months. It's a really tough treatment. You're going to feel, like, you know, feel awful during that time. You know, you might, it'll, it'll kill off all your white blood cells. You might get a, an infection that will kill you during that time. Very often there's complex decision-making like that. And it could be a perfectly rational decision not to do that. So um, my own father-in-law, Rachel's dad, um, died. In fact, in 2008, when we left St. John's the first time, we moved back up to Yorkshire because my father-in-law was, was ill with cancer. And he tried one line of chemotherapy, which looked like it had worked, but then it didn't. And so he had to sit down with the oncologist and say, well, look, we could try this really 
um, sort of industrial strength stuff, but you're going to feel awful. And he just said, you know what? There's actually not much chance for this working. And I felt so sick the first time. It's actually not worth me going through that. And so he said no to that. And then he had three months of, of being relatively stable when he did a lot of those really positive things, had lots of great conversations and sorted things out um, with his, his financial affairs and things. And then when it actually came to the end, there were things like, do you keep having blood transfusions? You know, they, another blood transfusion might keep you going for another week or another month. Um, do you have antibiotics when you get an infection? And we came to, to one position, it was a Friday morning, and he woke up with a fever, and he said, look, you know, I don't feel well. We, we knew, we said, the decision was, do we go into hospital or not? And we talked it through with him, and he said, do you know what, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to just go into hospital, get another round of antibiotics, come back. I mean, maybe the same thing happened a week later. So in that decision, in, the, in that time, you know, we said, OK, we're going to keep you at home. Well, he said that. We agreed with that, that, you know, the family gathered around. It was actually a really special weekend um, when all the family could be there. And that was, that was a really good decision in the situation. So it, it's not a bad thing to say, no, I think the, the, the cost or the... The, um, uh, the, the hassle of a certain trying something is not actually worth the benefit that it might bring. Thank you. Um, quick question. Mm. Scripture mentions more than one. Abimelech. Yeah. You. Which one? It was the one who had a, he had a millstone dropped on his head. He got a severe head injury, and he was dying. And in that situation, he said to the the soldier who was with him, he said, "Look." I don't want anyone to be able to say that I was killed by a woman, okay, because it was a woman who dropped a millstone off the wall onto his head. So he said, hey, quick, you kill me, stab me, and then I'll die, and then it'll be an honourable death. So that was about, in his view, that was dying with dignity, but it's not something that we generally recommend. And that is in Judges 9? Judges chapter 9, that's right. We all pretend that I actually knew that and I wasn't told that earlier. Judges 9. Um, and to finish, um, there's been a couple of questions around this theme. I just think it's a really good way to finish. Um, this person says, It strikes me that as a church, um, our own and more widely, we do not generally care well for those with complex and or severe disabilities. How can we do better as Christians and as a church, including being more welcoming and hospitable to those people? Great question. Um, I think I think there is always more that we can do. You know, being welcome to people, being welcoming to people who, I, I suppose, often we, we may feel uncomfortable because if someone's got a disability, um, we might not. We might think actually, you know, how do I talk to them? We might feel uncomfortable, um, especially if you know that someone's got a terminal illness. You might think, oh, I don't want to talk to them. It's so embarrassing. They will probably feel less embarrassed about it than you will, and so. It, it's, it's good just to be able to talk it's like anything, if you don't practice you'll never get better at it and most people understand that you won't always know what to say so as long as people know that you're doing your best um, that, that's great and just like we, you know, we do lots of other things to you know, have services set up so that we can look after our kids during the services etc, etc you know, if, they, if we could get a service so that somebody who needed a bit of respite care it may just be sitting with somebody while, someone, while their carer goes out for the evening. You know, that could be a great thing that we as a church could do in terms of supporting people who, let's face it, can get absolutely exhausted and run down by care responsibilities. You know, and it's good for us to be able to be honest about that. You know, when someone asks you, how are you? Don't just say, I'm fine, thanks. Say, I'm actually, I'm really struggling. 